Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? All right. Uh, if you were here last week, you're familiar with the fact that we are taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been in for quite some time and will still be for quite some time, and doing a month-long pause for the month of December to do a Christmas series entitled Joy Has Dawned. And in this, we are looking at the Psalms. Specifically, we want to look back at what they looked forward to, namely the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Son of God. And what I want to do this week is open by briefly reviewing the psalm from last week, Psalm chapter 2, and kind of demonstrate how, uh, in one sense, it solves a massive problem, and in another sense, it introduces to us another problem. So in one sense, it solves a problem. In another sense, it introduces a new problem. So from last week, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If you remember, this is this, this kind of haunting, scary image. It's this idea of the nations, all these evil, wicked nations conspiring together and uniting amongst themselves in order that they might assault God, that they might burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so it's this idea of the, the combined power of earthly forces of evil uniting in this conspiracy to kind of overthrow the rule and reign of God. Now, if you're here last week, how does God respond to uh, the sum total of wickedness in the nations attacking him? He laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, um, God is so above and beyond. He is so infinite. He is so powerful that even if you have all the combined powers of finite evil, they are no match for the infinite good. Do you follow this? There is an infinite gap between the sum total of finite united powers and the truly infinite one. The distance between that which is finite and that, is it, it, that which is infinite is still an infinite gap. It's a gulf that cannot be crossed by the nations. And this speaks of one of the aspects of the nature of God. When we speak of God, we say he's transcendent. And transcendent is a word that deals with that which is above and beyond. And God, by definition, is the most transcendent being. He is above and beyond. He is so different than us. He is higher than high. He is an infinite being. So he's above and beyond. And this idea is expressed in some of the characteristics and attributes of God. We could look at some of the omnis of God, and if you're unfamiliar with these terms, don't worry. Uh, They seem complicated, uh, but they're kind of easy to understand if you just break down the word. Omni means all. So omnipotent means that God is all-powerful. Omnipresent means he is all-present. He's everywhere. Omniscience means that he is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, he's all-present, and he's all-knowing. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've been a Christian a long time, sometimes these words are just thrown out and you can go, oh yeah, I know, God, God knows everything. Okay, I know that, I learned that when I was five. It's like you need to stop and reflect. Like, what exactly do we mean when we say God knows everything? Because it's, it's, not, it's not just a simple idea. The, the Christian claim that God knows everything is that God knows 
everything, everything that's possible to know, and he knows all things simultaneously. God is outside of time. He is an eternal being without beginning or end. Therefore, whatever God knows, God knows from eternity, and he knows all things simultaneously. And the reason why I say simultaneously is it's not as if God has to move from thought to thought. It's not as if he's looking down, oh, there's a problem, what do I, what do, I do to solve that? God doesn't move from thought to thought. That's how finite creatures think. You are a finite creature that moves from thought to thought. New information is acquired, you process it, you think about it. God is an eternal being. He is outside of time. God knows all things that are possible to know and he knows them eternally and simultaneously. He is a being without change, so he doesn't like acquire information. He knows the beginning from the end before creation. He doesn't, doesn't, God doesn't learn things. He doesn't acquire new information. He knows all things eternally. Now reflect on that for a moment because I said like all things, right? So you go, okay, God knows a lot of things. He knows like all the, he can name you all the, start, the starting lineup of the 1970-something giants or something. It's like, yeah, it's like, no, no. God knows intimately every grain of sand on the nearest beach. And he knows like intuitively and intimately the molecular structure of every grain of sand at the nearest beach. And he knows that for every beach on the face of the earth. It's said that there's roughly 250 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. God knows everything there is to know about those 250 billion stars. He knows every atom inside of them and exactly what every atom is doing. It's uh, estimated that one drop of, of blood contains about five million red blood cells. He knows every red blood cell perfectly in every drop of blood in every human being that ever existed. And he doesn't have to calculate it. He doesn't have to do the math. He's like, well, let me, you know, it's five million per drop of blood. It doesn't work that way. He knows every single human being that's ever lived and he knows everything that there is to know about every single human being that's ever lived. And if you wanna say this in poetic fashion, you can echo the scriptures and say, and God knows every hair on your head. He knows every single one. And so what you begin to understand is this being is like above and beyond. He knows your thoughts before you think them. You know, because in one sense, that's very encouraging. You could say, however, I could barely even understand that concept, but I know that that being is so above and beyond, so infinite and so powerful that yes, why do the nations rage? It's pointless. They can't compete with the infinite God and it's not even close. And so there's an encouragement that when you look out at the world, this isn't an issue. God has things under his control. Like he will deal with human evil. He will do with the wickedness of the nations. However, it also begins to introduce another problem. Some of you might even start beginning to kind of feel it on an emotional level. Like that being is so above and beyond, how do I even begin to relate to this God? He knows my thoughts before I think them. So because we are finite creatures, we immediately went to picture God and it's not like for, for bad reason, but we start to, to make God small and make him a lot like us. Like you're having this back and forth and God's waiting for you to respond. It's like God knows what you ask before you ask it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't ask it, by the way. 
just means that understanding how an eternal being relates to finite creatures in time is probably a bit complicated for said finite creatures. But you know, God is so above and beyond that then there's this emotional issue that goes, yes, I know he's above and beyond and powerful, but there are times in life when, yes, I want the, the above and beyond powerful God, but I also need a God who's, who's like near and close. And this becomes particularly pronounced in times of pain. When, when human beings experience suffering, you don't just want a God who's above and beyond. You want one who's near and close, who, who you can say like, he hears my prayers. He is not so far above and beyond. He is so close to me that he hears my prayers. He knows them. And he's with me in this moment. And so oftentimes in pain, that becomes particularly pronounced. God, where are you? I want to know that you're here. I want to know that you're with me. This is what Job cries out for. In the book of Job, if you're unfamiliar with it, Job experience is, he experiences immense suffering and the loss of everything. And I mean everything. The guy loses everything. And he reflects on his condition. He says, speaking of God, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. That God is this infinite being. He's not, he's not like me. He's not like, a, he's not like a man. So how can I even begin to approach in any sense of a relational manner this infinite being? And Job wrestles with this in the book. This same wrestling is, is echoed by a, a Christian musician who died, uh, I believe, 1997. Some of you might be familiar with him. His name was Rich Mullins. If you've been in the church game a long time, you may not recognize Rich Mullins, but you know this song called Awesome God. He wrote, he wrote that one. It's like the biggest worship song of all time. Um, in, it, in it, right before his death in 97, um, he was going to record a new album, and he went into a small church and, and just kind of put out, like in 1997, picture like a cassette player with like a microphone on it. So it's going to sound really bad, but it'll, it'll record the sound in the room. And he recorded sort of the demos that he was going to later professionally record. He died before he got to professionally record those, but this kind of like cassette or whatever it was that recorded these songs in this kind of, it's a horrible manner, but in the same way, it's beautiful, just like an old cassette in this old church building. Uh, so we have, we have these songs. And in one of the songs, Rich Mullins wrestles with this, that down here on earth, we suffer pain. And sometimes in life, if we're honest with ourselves, it feels as if God is just too far and beyond. We get the powerful thing, but you're just far. You are distant. And so he writes, do you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time? That's that thing we we're just wrestling with. How does the being outside of time, the infinite eternal one, relate to the finite creature in time? Down here it says, we are afraid of being left by those we love and we get hardened in the hurt. You who live in radiance, do you hear the prayers of us who live in skin? Again, God is the infinite being clothed in glory and radiance and we are but creatures in frail, fragile skin. And this powerful line, down here, where we all scrape to find the faith to ask for daily bread. Have you been there before? Where it's like you have to muster everything in you just to ask for daily bread. 
And then he asked this haunting question, did you forget about us? Did you forget us about us down here? He said, I memorized every word you said. In other words, I memorized every word you gave us. I read the scriptures, I read my Bible. Still, I'm so scared, I'm holding my breath. And have you been there? Like, have you been there in life? Maybe you remember a time, maybe you're there right now where you are just clinging to scriptures with whatever little strength you have. You are clinging to scriptures and the promises of God. Lord, I I do trust. I I, I have faith, but help my unbelief. With little strength I can muster, I'm going to hold on. Do you hear me? And this gets us into the psalm for today, Psalm chapter 22, because in Psalm chapter 22, King David writes this song. It's a, it's a song. It's Hebrew poetry. And it, it, we don't know exactly when he wrote it or the circumstances, but it's a, a point in his life where he feels like abandoned by God. And he's crying out to God, where are you? Are you going to save me? I'm barely holding on. And so the words are, are very powerful. And it says something about the human condition and, and also the character of God that this is in sacred scripture. Psalm 22 is in the scripture. It's the word of God. And it's about someone crying out to God saying, where are you? Psalm 22, one through two. King David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So again, we don't know the circumstances, but David is crying out in some type of pain. My God, why have you forsaken me? And he's like, why are you so far from saving me? That's that sort of infinite gulf, that infinite gap we're talking about. You, God, appear so above, so distant, so above and beyond, it seems as if you are so far from saving me. I need you here, I need you with me. Do not hide your face from me. Do not remove your presence from me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I cry out. It's, there's no answer. He goes on. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So David, he he begins with his cry, but then he affirms the holiness of God. Like, you, God, you are so high and above and beyond. You, You sit in heaven and you are enthroned in the praises of Israel. So it's not, it's not a rejection of the power or might of God. God sits enthroned in the praises of his people. And then he remembers that my fathers, our fathers, they trusted in you and and you delivered them. However, that is not the case for David, verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Feel the weight of that. David is abandoned. It's like his enemies surround him and everyone mocks him. They scorn him, they despise him. 
And because of that, his, his, his emotional state is one that doesn't even feel human. He adopts this image of the worm. I'm not even a man. I'm a worm. And so you see the distance. It's not like, like an, an animal, like a dog or something, or a lion or even a bear. It's I am a worm. The humiliation, the scorn, the shame. I am no man. I am a worm. My enemies surround me and I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. It's this idea of like sneering and grinding your teeth. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. The enemies are mocking David and he's, he's suffering. So it makes it worse, right? You are being mocked and humiliated in your suffering. And you were faithful. You were so faithful that your enemies even know it. So they mock you now. He trusts in the Lord. He delights in God. Let God save him. And it's this sort of idea. Where's your God? Where is he? You delighted in him. Where is he? We'll just stand here and mock until proven wrong. Then, this is where it's interesting. If, you're, if, you're, if you know the scriptures well, you go, some of this like, sounds a little familiar. Now, this is, to be clear, this is a song written by King David roughly 1000 BC. But you read this and you're kind of going, Does some of this sounds familiar. And so you have this idea of mocking and they're wagging their head. He trusts in the Lord, let him, let him deliver him. Psalm 22, and then you flash forward to the crucifixion scene of Jesus. And you have things like this recorded, Luke 23, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself, for he is the Christ of God. He is the chosen one. And then you have Mark 15, 29, 30, say this at the scene of the crucifixion. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, if, if, if you pay close attention, there's a phrase that's a little unique that's both in Psalms and in Mark. The enemies of the one who is suffering, they scorn him, they mock him, and they are wagging their heads at him. That's a unique phrase wagging their heads. In Mark 15, the phrase wagging their heads is used, and in Psalm 22, wagging their heads that's used. If you want to get into the complicated argument in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, what the New Testament authors quote often, the phrase wag their heads is the exact same in New Testament Greek and Septuagint Greek. So Mark is consciously aware that there is this connection and so in one sense, David is, King David is writing in poetic fashion about his own experience. This is, this is King David writing, and he's writing about his experience with suffering. However, as he's writing it in poetic fashion, he also appears to be prophetically outlining the suffering of another. It goes on. King David says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. 
like ravening and warring lions. So again, it's poetry. There's the enemies, and they're like bestial. They're animals. They're, they're like bulls, strong bulls from a specific region that produce these strong, sort of aggressive bulls. And they, they open wide their mouths. They're ready to attack. He says, I am poured out like water. In other words, all my energy is leaving my body. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breath. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. His tongue is sticking to his jaws. It's this image of thirst and dehydration. He's being poured out like water. All of his energy gone is gone. He's dehydrated. He's suffering. His, his heart is melting like wax. For dogs encompass me. More image of the kind of animals, of his enemies. The dogs, they encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing, they cast lots. Now this is, I mean, this is where it's like, this gets creepy. You're going, wait a second here. Wait a second. Did King David ever have his hands and feet pierced? There's, there's no, no recording of that. And furthermore, the first historical reference we have to crucifixion in the historical record is roughly 500 years after this psalm is written. King David wrote this in 1000 BC. The first reference we get is from roughly 500 BC. Nevertheless, you have King David describing in poetic fashion his own suffering, but also simultaneously as he describes his suffering in poetic fashion, he is accurately, prophetically depicting the suffering of another individual. And what is happening poetically to him is happening to the other sufferer in this quite literal sense. My hands and my feet are pierced. And they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Luke 23, 34 through 35 at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. David in his suffering is prophetically depicting the suffering of the son of David. Both things are true, it's not one or the other. In poetic fashion, his suffering is being depicted but in doing so, with accuracy, he is prophetically illustrating the suffering of the son of David. A son, by the way, who would not come to roughly a thousand years after the events of Psalm 22. One who would have his hands and feet pierced. One who would have his enemies encircle him and mock him. One who would have his garments divided up and sold. Which brings us all the way back to verse one. Jesus, on the cross, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quite popular in the Christian tradition. 
Because it's, it's, it's a haunting image. It's, it's the powerful almighty son of God and he's crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now at this point we have to stop and do some unpacking because most people are unaware of how Jesus is using Psalm 22 on the cross and therefore with good intention they say things that are are not complete, they're not the most theologically accurate way of describing things. You might hear things like, oh, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this is where Jesus is separated from God the Father. Heard stuff like that. It's well-meaning and there's a sense in which it's true, but it can also be incredibly destructive theologically. How many gods are there? One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You cannot... in any clear theological manner, remove part of God from God. If God is undone or torn apart, the universe ceases to exist. It's like it all comes undone. Jesus is bearing the, the, the weight of the sins of the world. There is a substitution taking place, but we can so emphasize that that we create it as if like, this is where like, the, the nature of God comes undone. In order to correct this understanding, you have to understand what Psalm chapter 22 is actually doing. Because Jesus quotes Psalm 22 in his suffering. But he knows something. He knows that every single person mocking him, watching him suffer, they all know Psalm 22. Remember, the Psalms are the hymn book of ancient Israel. Everyone has these songs memorized. And trust me, the religious leaders would have them memorized. But the average person would likely have them memorized. Everyone knows chapter 22 of the Psalms and they know it by heart. They've been singing it since they were little kids. And they know the rest of Psalm 22 because normally we just stop at verse one or maybe we get to like verse eight or nine or 10. But the Psalm goes on and every single person who's witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus outside of the Roman soldiers knows how the Psalm ends. Now this is important because when you know the full context of something, you, you know what someone means by their use of it. So for example, if I were to say something like, you know, I was a wretched person. I was a wretch. But you know how the song goes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You could finish it, right? Saved a wretch like me. And if you're in a Christian setting where people have grown up singing that song their whole life, you could just say, amazing grace, and everyone else would be able to sing the rest of the first verse. Because you know the song, you've been singing it forever. You know how it works. Everyone knows how Psalm 22 works. In addition, in addition to that, we know that the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament is oftentimes the New Testament will quote one verse, one or two verses from the Old Testament, but they are actually just kind of referencing that one verse so that you think about the whole chapter. This is how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. They throw out a verse and they're not just kind of giving you five words to back up their claim. They're wanting you to draw to mind everything that occurred. So if they say, remember Isaac and Mount Moriah, they're not just telling you, oh, remember that verse in Genesis chapter, da, da, da. They're wanting you to remember the whole event of Abraham taking his son Isaac up the mountain, the deliverance, God saying he will provide. So it's absolutely important for us to understand is the rest of Psalm 22. Because Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's this idea 
why are you so far from saving me? What's the second half of the psalm do? After the suffering of the servant, the suffering of the suffering figure, there's victory. God rescues his servant. And in 22, 22, it begins to say this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. The one who suffers will be vindicated and he will tell of the name of the Lord to his brothers. He will testify of God's goodness in the midst of the congregation. Verse 24, for... He has not despised, abhorred, abhorred the afflicted of the afflict, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Do you follow this? He has not hidden his face from him. However distant you feel from God, however despised you feel whatever shame or humiliation, whatever life circumstances threw at you, even if you feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm declares God has not hidden his face from you. But he has heard when he cried to him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise him. May your hearts live forever and the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm chapter two. The king rules over the nations. The one who was suffering, who felt abandoned by God has been vindicated and restored. He's testifying of the Lord's goodness and get this in verse 27, the ends of the earth, the nations will know who the one true God is. So when you read the rest of Psalm 22, you get lines like this. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. God did not hide his face. All the families of the earth shall worship before you. Whatever's taken place in Psalm 22, the outcome of it is that the nations will come to know the one true God. And then Psalm 22 declares, he has done it. God has done it. Does that sound like something? It is finished. Christ knows what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He was faithful till his last breath and declared, it's finished, it's done. God will be victorious. Now, you have to understand at this point, this was the plan before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ is called the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. So the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, saw fit before he laid the foundations of the world to send the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to die for sinners. This was not something that like caught God off guard. 
He knows all things from beginning from, and the end. From eternity, he's known all things. He's known about human rebellion. Nevertheless, rather than despise his creation, he decides that, and sees fit that the person of the Son would come in the flesh in order to reconcile a rebellious people to a righteous God. So it didn't catch him off guard. Jesus, which we just read in Matthew several weeks ago, says what about his going to Jerusalem? I am going to Jerusalem to be handed over, to be crucified, and be raised on the third day. Jesus is faithful to the very end because he knows his Father is faithful to the very end. And this was the plan of the triune God before the foundations of the world. Now, why did God do this? To bridge the gap. To bridge the gap between the infinite and the finite. Remember Job's cry that we started with. Job says in his suffering, God, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. He's not like me. He's not a man. And he goes on. Job says, there is no arbiter between us. There's no mediator. And listen to this line. There is no arbiter between us. Who might lay his hand on both of us? Do you see this image? There is no one who could have one hand on the infinite, almighty, transcendent God and then have another hand on finite, frail, and fallen creatures like humans. Job, thousands of years before the time of Jesus, is crying out in his suffering and saying, there's no one who could be the mediator. There's no one who can have one hand in the infinite and one hand in the finite. There's no one to bridge the gap. So do you see what Job is longing for? Do you see what Job in his suffering is crying out for? Job is longing for the incarnation. Job is longing for a mediator. Job is longing for Christmas. Job is longing for the transcendent one to become the imminent one. Transcendent means above and beyond. Imminent means the close and near. Job is saying, is there someone who can have a hand that can take me to the infinite? And the Christmas story, the Christmas message is how God bridges the gap. How God takes the infinite gulf between us and somehow brings us together. This is a radical claim that Christianity is making, that the infinite almighty God would become like us. Because we need to know that there is a transcendent one, trust me. When you look evil in the eye and see human suffering, you better hope there's someone who's above and beyond, who is infinite in power and majesty and who doesn't flinch at the combined forces of human evil. But when you're crying yourself to sleep, you don't just want above and beyond, you want near and close. What your heart longs for is what the Hebrew prophet Isaiah described as Immanuel, God with us. He's not just above and beyond, he's with us. He's with you. And how does he accomplish this? God himself would come as a human and he would have the lowliest of births and the lowliest of deaths, born in a manger, executed on a cross. 
God saw fit before the foundations of the world to come in the lowliest of manners, born in a manger, executed on a cross. Why? So that he might be with you. That he might be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And so down here on earth, you need both. You need to know God is above and beyond. He is nothing like you. But you also need Emmanuel, God with us. And this is why the promise of the spirit of Jesus is so powerful. Jesus says he sends his spirit and this presence of God will never leave or forsake you. If you are in Christ, the presence of God will never leave or forsake you. Therefore, when life hits you hard, and it will, and you feel verse one of Psalm 22, my God, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? You cling to the second half of that Psalm. He has heard the cries of the afflicted. He will not turn his face from the one who suffers. This is why Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you follow the logic of this? You have a high priest, God himself, the son of God. And this high priest is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our sufferings, Why? Because he's been tempted in every way just as we are. The only difference is he didn't sin. So God is above and beyond, but he also knows what it's like to suffer down here on earth. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be crying tears late into the night. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends and family. He knows physical suffering unimaginable. He knows what it's like to be born into poverty. He knows what it's like to be born under the boot of an evil empire. He identifies with us in all of our sufferings. The only difference is he never gave in. He never succumbed to the temptation. He suffers like us yet without sin. And in the incarnation and the Christmas message, you have the infinite gulf between the infinite and the finite being bridged by infinite almighty God. That's the message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation. And Christ would come and have the lowliest birth and the lowliest death, born in a manger, executed on a cross, in order that he might accomplish the will of God that was planned out before the foundations of the world. Now, what are the implications of that on just a very practical level? One, that should change uh, how you pray. Because you pray to a God who laughs at the nations. He laughs. You know, because there's always all kinds of evil going on, all kinds of human suffering. There's nothing new under the sun. God's in heaven, he laughs. He's above and beyond, almighty and powerful. But when you're praying and you feel abandoned and you feel alone and you feel like he's nowhere to be found, you cling to the promises. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he knows what it's like. When you're crying those prayers into the night, he knows what that's like. He cried prayers into the night and asked his best friends to stay up with him and they fell asleep. He knows what it's like. 
So it should change the way we pray. It should also change the way we suffer. Have you ever gone through something incredibly difficult? And you know, everyone is trying to do their best to bring comfort and understanding, but sometimes it just helps when someone goes, no, I know what that's like. And it's not in some, you know, half-hearted matter. No, I, that, that exact same thing happened to me. And what's interesting, what happens is, it's not as if that makes any of the pain go away, but there's comfort in knowing there's someone alongside of you who knows what it's like. They know what it's like. Friends, God knows what it's like to suffer down here on earth. He knows that pain. And then thirdly, the incarnation should change our understanding of the very nature of God. Why? Born in a manger, executed on a cross. Why? So that he could be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the love of God made known to a rebellious world. Who else would do that? Who else would leave heaven to be born in a manger and die on a cross? How great the love of God is. How great the love of Christ is. How great the love of the Spirit. That the one true God saw fit before the foundations of the world to save a wretch like me. It's amazing grace, right? 